it's the strangest thing in the world to me to uh, speak with you after Mike speaks without singing first. We're kind of a relic here. You young people give me a lot of hope about the, uh, the staying power of our our church family. But um, all of you young people. You belong to, um, if you like to sing like I do in church, you belong to a culture that's fast disappearing. This little museum building. I mean, people think in the town, they think this is a museum. We'll have an event and someone will come from the town and be like, oh, you're a, you're a pa- past, what do you call it, a pastor? Okay, yeah, for your parish. <laughs> they'll, say, they'll say you're a pastor. And um, so the, I thought this was a, just like a museum. I didn't think it was like a real church. And um, that means that they're not driving by, you know, on Sunday morning with the you know, parking lot full or third full or whatever it is these days. Um, and uh, that means that they're already at the casino which is now closed, or they're at another church, which I'm thrilled for them and all that. But um, the culture doesn't really know what we are, and uh, the pop culture is kind of moving on, and we're not in terms of joining with pop American Christian culture uh, in our art and our expression of art. And um, it's because, in part, we don't want to. In part, we don't think we should. And there's a should in that, and that's the gospel music wars and all that. And I don't want to get into that, but it has to do with aesthetics and aesthetics are very central to what you are as a culture. And I've been told that you have to accommodate the culture you live in in order to minister the gospel to them. And I'd say in a sense you do, you need to speak the language and understand them, but you don't have to adopt the worship methods of a paganized Christian culture. And um, so What I'm trying to say is I really miss singing with you and it's getting more of a load the farther we go in the calendar. Um, I'm pretty sure that around November 4th, the schools will open and um, maybe they'll let us uh, (laughs) stop. Well, they let us, we're we're doing what we do because we wanna protect you. But I just, um, I miss singing with you and um, it's a high priority for us and we're not acting like it's a priority to sing God's praises together. And, and uh, that's because we have a higher priority. So just understand where I'm at. I want to share with you the story of This Is My Father's World from 1901, you know, back in the uh, long, long, long ago, in 2000 years of church history, this happened 100 years ago. The name is Malt, <laughs> Malt B. Babcock. That's a lot of B's in that name, Malt B. Babcock. And uh, his parents must have been very interesting people. Arguably the most remarkable student Syracuse University had ever seen. Hailing from an aristocratic family, he was a brilliant scholar with a winning personality, tall and steel-muscled. He was an outstanding athlete, expert swimmer, and captain of the baseball team. He also directed the university's orchestra, played several instruments, and composed original compositions. A proficient vocalist, uh, sorry, proficient a proficient vocalist, a literate pastor, a proficient vocalist. He directed the university glee club. He entertained other students by drawing and doing impersonations on 
uh, on the side. He was an avid fisherman. If anybody's read a separate piece by John Knowles, that would be Phineas. Maltby would have been successful in any profession, but God called him to the ministry. And after further training at Auburn Theological Seminary, he became pastor of the first Presbyterian church in Lockport, New York. It was a beautiful area midway between Lake Erie and Lake Ontario, not far from Niagara Falls. Maltby enjoyed hiking and running in the hills outside town, telling his secretary, whoa, he got a secretary. All right. Telling his secretary, I'm going out to see my father's world. He would run or hike a couple of miles into the countryside where he'd lose himself in nature. This man was bigger than life. And I just want to preach a second about him. He was larger than life and you've never heard of him. And everyone that knew him thought, what a great man, what an awesome personality, what a wonderful person to be around on the trail or in the church. You never heard of him. He's never impacted you in terms of his personality, but his art and his thoughts have impacted all of us as we've sung his words of praise of our God. Let's finish the story. It was during the, his pastorate at Lockport that he wrote a 16 stanza poem, each verse beginning with the words, this is my father's world. In 1886, Maltby was called to the Brown Memorial Church in Baltimore. While there, he traveled widely and was in great demand on college campuses. <laughs> he was a fresh, engaging speaker who never failed to stimulate students. In 1899, he moved to the Brick Presbyterian Church in New York City. Here he found it more difficult to take off on his hikes. The workload was enormous, but Malty faced it stoically writing, be strong, we are not here to play, to dream, to drift. We have hard work to do and loads to lift. Shun not the struggle, face it. Tis God's gift to be strong. When he was 42, his church presented him with a special gift, a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I believe that would be an Israel trip. Um, with great excitement, Maltby departed by ship while en route to Naples, Italy. He was seized with a deadly bacterial fever and died at the International Hospital on May 18th of 1901. After his death, his wife compiled his writings into a book entitled Thoughts for Everyday Living, published in 1901. Included was Maltby's This Is My Father's World. He is Phineas. He died young of a freak bacterial infection. This is my father's world and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees of skies and seas, his hand, the wonders wrought. Why, why are these little fun ditty words important to us today? Have you thought about that song and its impact on your life or your kids' lives? We're not gonna sing that. We're gonna sing God is, is uh, reckless. We're gonna sing something that isn't true about God in popular Christian church, that God is out of control because God's love is reckless, most popular song in the last few years. And uh, just one thing I like to harp on in pop Christian music. When the reckless God song comes on, I switch over to something more like Southern gospel or something, something with some substance that isn't just blasphemous. Well, Maltby said, this is my father's world. Well, we can argue about the king kingdoms of the earth being given over to Satan and Satan says, I can give them to whoever I want. And Jesus calls him the ruler of this world and understand the creator owns his creation. He's going to get his glory out of it. This is my father's world. And there has been a dominion given over to Satan for a time. But just think about these words. Maltby's out on the, on the trail. 
He's in the Word too, by the way. He's not like, well, my time in, in the Bible is when I'm hiking and meditating. No, no, no. He's in the Word and he takes that perspective out to the world. And what he sees is God's rocks. God made that rock. He sees God's sunshine and says, God made that for me. And he appreciates God in every aspect of creation. That's what that song is saying. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought. Friends, in your country, in the time in which you live, if you give your children to this culture's method of raising children, if you give them to it, then they're going to learn about the rocks and the trees and the sunshine and the seas and the vastness of space. And they'll learn about it all from Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye and all the popularizers and all the non-popularizers of secularism as we look at God's creation and deny its connection to the creator. And what ought to be worship in science class, what ought to be honoring God in literature class, what ought to be a recognition of the miracle of language and its effectiveness in language arts class becomes an exercise in ignoring your creator. That's why This Is My Father's World is one of the best songs to teach to the little kids. Because that's, that's how you start your day in school hey, we're going to learn today about the scientific method because God gave us a brain. And with all due respect to the Smithsonian Institution's Black History Museum, the scientific method is not white culture. It's the consequence of reasoning. And that's not white and that's not black. That's God's image in man. Are y'all watching the news? This is my father's world. I wish I had a copy of that poster. I would preach on that today. You can't get it today on the Black History Museum's uh, website. They won't give you the white culture thing. It tells you that all the benefits that make you a successful, any successful civilization because of God's image bearers, they, they say that's white. <laughs> Rule of law. <laughs> anyway, it's a funny time in which we live. And that's what, that brings me to confession of sin. If uh, you find yourself angry yet sinning, then you're going to be at odds with Ephesians chapter four, to which we turn this morning. And my goal is to uh, take us through Paul's instructions, his exhortations to the Christians regarding how to live in light of our high calling, our great privilege in Jesus Christ. And let me start with that. You are privileged beyond anything you can perceive because what Paul prays for in verse, uh, in, in, uh, in chapter three, is that you would come to know something that surpasses knowledge, the love of Christ. When we are beset with our failing fits and our hardships in the moment, when we are hoping and rejoicing and expecting the temporal delights of legitimate pleasures in this life, and we're forgetting the constant truth that the only person whose opinion matters has a high, wonderfully high opinion of you because he sees his son when he looks at you. When we in our lives are not characterized by the truths of our position in Christ, we are in risk of missing out on the glories of the, of the day God's provided for you. And that is at times a moment for repentance, a change of mind that God would give us that perspective. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we open the scriptures, having not sung together, we will open uh, with hearts that are clean. The 
Lord Jesus taught that Christians need to confess their sins. Jesus taught that believers in Christ who are forgiven of all their sins, past, present, and future, in terms of their position, need to still confess their sins that they commit as Christians. Jesus taught that. He is an excellent, I'm sorry, the excellent teacher. He's the teacher par excellence. And the way he taught it was with an object lesson of washing the disciples' feet. Peter said, wash the whole person, Jesus. If I need to be clean so that I can have part with you, fellowship with you, then wash my whole person. Jesus said, no, you've already bathed, but your feet are dirty. There is a partial cleansing for the forgiven. Because there's two kinds of forgiveness, apparently. That's what I must conclude. That's what theology does. It submits to the text. There is the forgiveness that you cannot lose, and there's a forgiveness in terms of an, an experiential fellowship that you need to maintain. There's one you can't lose called, I'm in Christ, and there's one that you need to maintain called abiding in Christ. Fellowship is different from relationship, and that's complicated, but it's not that complicated. It's just as complicated as your family. Every one of you that have kids, you know times when the kid is not walking with you, and they need to change. They need an attitude adjustment. You need to fix that. You need to get back in fellowship with the family, however you would say it. But you would never for a minute say they're not in your family. You would never for a minute say, I don't love them with all my heart. I'm doing everything I can. You didn't stop adding to their whatever college account or their training or whatever. You, didn't, you did not provide food that day, even though they needed to make an adjustment. Sometimes they go all the way to the prodigal. They're not, not your son. They're just not acting like it. And that's what we're talking about, about fellowship and forgiveness in terms of your experience as a Christian. Make no mistake, the apostle John is talking about himself when he said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if that is a, 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 a fishbone that sort of hangs in your throat for some reason, talk to God about it, read the scriptures, check it out, ask what in the world throughout all of scripture, even in the Levitical offerings, what did God do for believers who were regenerate, who were guilty of personal sin? You need to clean up. James is not saying become a Christian when he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Lift up holy hands to God in Old Testament Hebrew style prayer doesn't mean that you need to go back to the cross and get saved means we need cleansing. We need him to make us fit. Isaiah doesn't become a believer when God cleanses him. In Isaiah 6, he becomes fit for service. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that in Christ there is no distinction. The privileges that we have because of our position in Christ so outstrip any other considerations. And yet, Father, we are insensible to them. But your word makes us aware. As the Apostle Paul has prayed, our Father, our dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would make us aware of the riches in Christ and let that be the basis for our walk, how we live our lives, even as Paul in the spirit has designed this text, that our privileges would call out our practice and not the religious satanic alternative. I pray in Jesus name. Amen.
where, where we find ourselves in the scriptures is um, Ephesians chapter 4, the spiritual life that is true, that is a consequence of our privilege of being in Christ. The long sentence of chapter 1 has given way to the prayers and the deposit of doctrine that we belong to this body, this new man in Christ. And now we're walking worthy of that calling. And it's, that's the pattern. That's the pattern. It's how your family works. It's how you came up. If you had parents that loved you, it's how God deals with us. What I mean is, before that baby ever expressed any affection toward you, any obedience motivated by love for you, any honor to you before that baby ever did any of those things when, you know, when they got to be 30 or whatever, when they, <laughs> you had given and given and given and mom, you had nursed that baby and you had protected that baby. You had provided for that baby. You had given and given and given, and he grew or she grew into somebody that was built by the love and the giving that you had expressed. And that made that person who that person was in part so that when the response came, when my little boy, when my little three-year-old said, daddy, I love you for the first time. And it wasn't prompted by like, I, I love you. I love you too. But he came up, sat in my lap, daddy, I love you. When I, when that first happened, it's, it's very uh, striking moment. That a, a, a shift has happened. The giving and giving and giving and the taking and the taking and the taking has had an effect that now there's a response and it's an affection and it's beautiful. And we know all of you parents know what I'm talking about. And you who don't have kids yet, hey, stay tuned if you're young. It's a, it turns out to be, um, let's say an important part of your time and energy in life. But that, that it, it switches and you start being a product of that and expressing it. And that's my illustration. God has given you in Ephesians chapters one through three, a, a, a window into all that he's doing through Jesus Christ for you. And now he's saying, whether you feel this way or not, this is who you are. So now what are you responsible for? How should you then live? is chapters four through six. And remember the summary, I, the prisoner in verse one of chapter four, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Christians, this is supposed to humble every one of us. This is supposed to remind every one of us that we have an expectation of a certain level of excellence in our Christian walk. And it doesn't just mean I'm not sinning, it doesn't just mean I've got a list of things that I don't do those things. It means that much more I am walking as though Christ is expressing himself through me. As the prayer uh, of chapter 3 verses 14 through 19 would challenge us. So we find ourselves having talked about the unity. We're supposed to walk in unity in chapter uh, 4. We're supposed to be, have uh, humility individually and unity corporately. We're supposed to be growing into Christ so that the body is causing its own growth in the power of the Lord Jesus. So as you grow, your spiritual gifts are growing and they're affecting one another. So the whole church is causing its growth. 
building up of itself, it says, in love. It's a, it's a machine, if you will, like, like a living machine, like a cell or an organ, that if it gets the right inputs, it produces, it makes more of itself. It builds and grows, and that's God's design. And so you're robbing the church if you're not growing spiritually. You're robbing the church if you're not expressing your spiritual giftedness in a maturing way. Right? And we've said, you know, the, the summary command that under which Paul preaches is love one another as I've loved you. He's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. A new commandment I give you that you love one another and as Christ has loved you. And we have to really grasp uh, and, and re wrestle with that because that's, that's the overarching thing that, that is driving everything. Love is how you um, understand your gifts. Your gifts are equipping you to serve. That's the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. All that love is, love is patient, love is kind, right? That's all in a context of spiritual gifts. So we're talking about the growth of the church and its spiritual giftedness, and that's an expression of Christian love. Christian love is a generic thing. It's a very specific thing, but it can be stated generically. Do y'all know what Christian love is? Do y'all know what it is? I hope you know what it's not. It is not affection. Christian love can be expressed with affection. And sometimes affection is that love. It, you, you do need to love by supplying affection. But it's not the same thing. Oh, I just feel this deep connect. No, that's not Christian love. If you watch it, if you watch closely in the text, what love is, you have to kind of dispense with your culture, with what the world tells you love is, even what you grow up in your family. We love each other because we eat cereal at the same time in the same place every day. We're in the same family. That's not, that's not, that's phileo. That's not agape. Agapao, the love we're talking about is the self-giving desire and action for the best of the other. It is true altruism. It is truly seeking the best for the other. And in Christian love, it's the best that God says. It's not what I think you need. It's what I think God says you need. It's what my desire is for God to have his way. That's why all of Paul's prayers are about that, about God expressing himself, God glorifying himself through his readers. And so now we're in Ephesians chapter four, talking about this Christian walk. And we're gonna talk now about how not to walk in verses 17 through 19. We'll unmute our, oh, I know what happened. Hang on a sec. There we go. Verses 17 through 19 is going to talk about how not to walk. Verses 20 through 24 is going to be live as you learn Christ. And verses 25 through 32 of chapter four, a long chapter, is the new man in place of the old. Putting on the new man and putting off the old man, the old life. And it doesn't mean the old sin nature. It means the new way of life, the new you in Christ. Live out your position in Christ. So let's get to how not to walk in verses 17 through 19. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, they having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. This is how not to walk. And it becomes a matter of discernment for you and me to figure out what Paul means, to identify it and recognize it when you see it, 
and also not become self-righteous and judgmental of the other, except to say, that's not something I'm supposed to do. That's something for which Jesus Christ died. So how not to walk? Let's look at it in a little bit of detail. He says, therefore, on the basis of this building up of the body of itself in love, chapter four, verse 16. Now, this I say and insist, can't be, uh, he's got many ways of issuing commands and it's fun. You should go through, we should go through and count the commands in Ephesians four through six. I know people say, well, we're in grace and the Old Testament was law. And so they had commands and we've got grace. Oh, that is like the worst summary of the Bible. It's, the, you know, it's, it's completely wrong. You are, you are just shot through with commands all through this section of scripture. So he says, I insist on the Lord in the Lord that you no longer walk. That'd be a command that you no longer walk, even as the rest of the Gentiles walk. You Ephesians are Gentiles for the most part, but you're part of a new organization called the church, which is composed of church of Christians, I'm sorry, of, of Jews and Gentiles. That's the church. And so you don't walk like the rest of the Gentiles right? And you're the way the world is. Now, Paul says in first Corinthians five, if you were to get away from people who fornicate, I've got some attention. If you were to, to get away, completely separate yourself from people who fornicate, you have to leave planet earth. He anticipated rockets long before Isaac Newton discovered the calculus that would make rocket travel possible. And long before we ever launched any rockets, you would have to leave the earth to get away from the fornicators. But he's saying you have to separate from the Christians who deny the gospel by lifestyle, sexual practice, sexual sin. And he's saying, you, I'm talking about Christians, those called brother. I'm not talking about the world. So understand the whole world is morally corrupted. So you don't walk like the rest of the people walk. Mind blown. I'm not supposed to live like everyone else in my culture. In fact, I'm supposed to say, Whatever culture I belong to has been corrupted by the moral deficiencies of Satan's world system. Now, I want to say this again. Culture is something I've been studying a lot because I have to, because I'm trying to do, finish a program here. Culture is not the world. The world in the Bible, the cosmos, is Satan's system of deception administered by his demons who whisper somehow in a way I don't know their lies, their deceptions. That's, that's the world. And it is all over the nations. He's got hold of all the nations. He's the one that's deceived the nations. Now, it's the prince of the power there in Ephesians 2. But the culture is the way people understand, interact, use language, have customs, all those things that are trappings of our interactions. How we use our language. These are factors of culture and the cultures are different. They are loosely connected to nationalities, but the culture you live in today and, and here in the Shire in Eastern Connecticut, well, that's a little different from the culture that the people lived in the Shire in the 50s. Different culture. Wouldn't get each other. The things that you're worried about, they weren't worried about. It's just a cultural difference. Here's what I want to say about culture. Culture just means that people are interacting. It means you have, you have shared values, beliefs, perspectives even function of language is not even just moral, but in every culture, Satan's system of the world is having its way. It's influencing, it's speaking. It is constraining aspects of culture. So it's wrong to say culture is the world, but it's also wrong to say my culture is good. 
my culture, like all cultures, has been impacted by Satan's world system. And as people who live within a given culture, we should be able to spot the errors. Today, there's a popular movement that's actually not that popular, but it's in all the media. And it's holding an outsized influence on the hearts of our people because Satan is powerful with his, with his messaging. That, that this culture here is inherently corrupt because of things like rugged individualism and the Protestant work ethic and the nuclear family and Christian morality and blah, blah, and all the things that make for a successful culture. Our problem is not that we've been moral. Our problem is that we actually are not rising to the level of those moral standards. That's what's killing us. And it's just, it really is just children um, screaming at the, at the wind, at the, at the sky. People howling, moon bats howling at the sky after the election in 2016. So um, you belong to a culture and it's your tendency and mine to say we're right. But we're not. There are things about us that are right and things about us that are wrong. And basically it comes down to we're comfortable with the culture that we're used to. Go spend 20 years in some other culture, you'll become more used to that, more comfortable in that setting. Come back to the other culture, maybe it won't be as familiar. But the point is, we are dealing in a war of ideas with God's enemy who wants us to think that culture is the thing, that's one way the world has infected it, and that it's right because it's us and all these things, and that's how the Gentiles walk. And we're called to something completely different, completely higher. The culture we are a part of that we're supposed to really uh, subscribe to morally and in every way is the one new man in Christ. And it doesn't become a governmental structure. It's not a visible organization with a hierarchical government. It's got little individual cells all around, all around the world and all the different cultures of this whole planet are capable of having Christians join together and grow in the power of the spirit so that we put on Christ. And that's different from how the Gentiles walk. Basically, you have to deny the whole premise. You have to re reject the whole argument and say, this is infinitely higher and it's God's way. And your little squabbles, cultural conflicts, there's only one way to resolve that. It's just noise and a mess and friction. The only way to resolve that is to reject it and go for Christ. And then Jesus expresses himself in every culture. Even as the Gentiles walk is not how we're to walk in the futility of their mind. Now I'm going to take it step by step because it's worth thinking about it. How do the Gentiles walk? The most intelligent Gentile thinkers, and that means the way the world, the people of the world think, are in a matayotes of mind. They're in a, a futility of mind. Matayotes means futility. It means meaninglessness or worthlessness. And yes, I mean the smartest people you can think of in the fields that deny the creator, according to a smarter person named Solomon, don't have the first step in knowledge and wisdom. They don't know. And so there's a futility of mind in the rejection of the fear of the Lord. And that's how the Gentiles walk. And here's why. Because they've been darkened in their understanding. This is Paul echoing what he's already said chronologically in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 uh, was written before Ephesians 4, but it's the same type of discussion. The Gentiles, the nations, the people of the world have been darkened in the understanding. And so there's a problem in our 
ability to process reality, to process truth, to think. We've been cognitively impacted by the fall. And there's not only our internal breakdown, but there's been this constant withering attack in a way that we don't, I believe, I don't believe we cognitively perceive, but a withering attack by doctrines of demons. So they've been darkened in their understanding with the result that they are strangers to the life of God. And so Paul doesn't give you the mechanics of how this works. We can conjecture about that. He says that all you really need to know is the difference between you and your walk and the Gentiles and their walk is your, your heart has been enlightened to the truth of God's word and the work of Christ. And they are darkened and worthless in their speculation because they haven't been so enlightened. And the real problem is that they are strangers to the life of God. Now, this is a hard and fast distinction that the Apostle Paul makes with a person that is spiritual versus a person that's carnal in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3. And you as a Christian can think like an unbeliever. You can adopt the darkened thinking of the world and think just like them. Or you can say, wait a second, there is this distinction between the way the spirit works and our thinking through the word and the way the world works. It is a distinction and I need to acknowledge that. And I need to check myself, am I walking worthy of my calling? Or am I walking as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind with their understanding being darkened who have no uh, experience with the life of God? through the ignorance which is in them. Paul just can't keep quit harping on this inner man problem. There's a reason God gave us a book. There's a reason his messengers had words to say. It's because we're supposed to be thinking his thoughts. Shocker. We're all supposed to be bookworms in the sense that God gave us the book. And so there's ignorance that makes them strangers to the life of God through their hardness of their heart. So not only is there a lack of content in the person, there's a breakdown in the function of the inner person. There's a callousness, been called scar tissue. There's an incapacity to manage the material. That's what he's saying. Their hardness of heart, a concept that's uh, very familiar to an Old Testament reader, and I believe Paul's speaking out of that context, who since they had become callous, heart of heart, insensible to these things, themselves they gave over to self-abandonment. I'll tell you why the color is in a minute, but they gave themselves over to self-abandonment. That's where we are as a culture. This culture has run at that course in terms of popular culture and popular morality. So giving oneself over to, to uh, it says they gave themselves over to self-abandonment. That sounds like they gave themselves over to self-giving. But it just means they just, whatever the flesh says has a mainline connection to my feelings. And I just am a product of whatever my sin nature proposes. That's what that means, giving over to self-abandonment. That is popular morality. If you're really smart and you read the philosophers undergirding our popular psychological and sociological world, you're going to read Freud. You're going to have to read Sigmund Freud to be really smart and to really help build this destructed, destroyed culture. And if you read Freud, you find out his opinion of sin. He didn't believe in it. You find out his idea of this giving over to self-abandonment. He thinks that's natural and adjusted. That's the real person who just does whatever his impulses direct him to do. Because 
I hope you understand. He's operating from a Darwinistic frame of mind, an atheistic and Darwinistic idea, and you're just an animal. And for you to progress and evolve, you've got to give in to your instincts and just do whatever your base lusts require. These are ideas that are, these speak directly to us today. And I, I know that you may not be struggling with Freud and you may not be thinking that you're an animal, and, but the people around you the Gentiles to whom we've been called to love, to minister to, to share Christ with, to bring them along in the faith, these people are breathing this air and they think it's morally correct that people do whatever they want to do. Some of the ways you'll hear it here in the Shire are the heart wants what the heart wants. I don't, I don't, I, don't, I think we've grown apart and we just don't love each other like we used to. That, that's just very common here in the Shire. Well, you know, it's just not like it used to be. And, uh, you know, so we just kind of do our own thing, go our separate ways. Now that's touching. I mean, we went from Darwinism and Freud to divorce very quickly. How do we do that? The common link is that your emotions connected to your sinfulness. And so sinful emotions become the moral norm. That's what he's talking about. They gave themselves over to self-abandonment. It doesn't mean that these people are, you know, ravaging hordes of serial rapists or something. And the worst thing you can think of people doing. Although Freud would say, that's what your impulses direct you to. That's what you're supposed to do. But this is, this is the biblical alternative. This is the biblical alternative to orienting our thoughts to God's word and the power of God's spirit. And this is why I'm really down on pop Christian culture. Personally, I think there has been this assumption that Christianity is primarily located in our intuitive, mystical urges and leanings. And that sounds a lot like this. That's why preachers are going in the evangelical world are going full Marxist, uh, using this race card effort to just get Marxism into the culture and they're, they're buying it and they're preaching it. They themselves gave over to self abandonment under the pursuit of all uncleanness in the sphere in, in greed. I think it, it means within this complex of thought that is greed, the sphere of greed would be my bringing out of the, the dative of sphere. So what he's saying is that um, there's a, there's a, a baseline tendency we have. Oh, there it is. It's greed. Yep. Capitalism. No, every person, every human heart wants more for himself. And we think we start with think of glory, fame, friends, regard from others, wealth, stuff, whatever. We're all amassers. We forget if we're not thinking clearly as Christians that, yeah, we're supposed to be a masters to the glory of God. We're, we're amassing for him. But this sphere of greed is a human default setting. That's one way of describing our brokenness. So they've given themselves over to self-abandonment in the pursuit of all uncleanness in the sphere of greed. Now, if that language, which is fairly generic, sounds familiar to you, like that sounds, that sounds like primetime television or whatever. It, you know, it, does that even mean anything anymore? This just sounds like moral norm today. The, the Bible is talking to you about 
the way the Gentiles walk. Remember the, the, the premise, and I've kind of indented over. The first thing is don't walk like the Gentiles walk. You used to be like this, but now you've got to break out of that thinking. Ephesians 4.14, we just had, don't be tossed like children on every wind that blows, every wave and every wind of doctrine that blows. And so this is how the Gentiles are. Now he's given you some insight into why you think differently. Why you think differently. When you hear something that sounds good, but something bothers you, I'm not quite sure what that is. That may be your thinking, trying to process all the data to understand where the poison is. Listen to it. Listen to that sense that uh, there's something wrong with that, but uh, generally I agree. See, I, it's very complicated in our time. I've said, and I'll say again, the, the language that we're hearing of defund the police in our culture and Black Lives Matter and systemic racism, okay? In all of these statements, except for defunding the police, saying police brutality is wrong or something, that's true. In all of these, you have something that is right. Black lives do matter. Social justice, the, the, the justice, just treatment of people and groups, right. That's a right thing in the way the, way the language is used. But none of these things that are being said mean what those words mean to you or mean in general. The, Black Lives Matter means that sexual libertinism and the effort to destroy the nuclear family and introduce Marxism as a popular cultural norm, playing the race card because of the, the horror of African slavery in America. Is, is that's, that's what Black Lives Matter is as an organization. That's the founders, that's their, their ethos as they're starting things. And so they put a title on there that's true and it's covering a whole bevy of lies. And people are buying that house that's full of termites. It's got a nice coat of paint on the outside. And so black lives do matter, but black lives matter is satanic as an organization. And so I think in your culture, in the, way, in the day we live, I, I think I figured it out. Marxist ideologues deceive. That's, what the, that's the bumper sticker. Social justice, Black Lives Matter, it's all Marxist ideologues, Marxist people that are trying to get their reorganized society their way. And th this could be just a facade for some other attack that we don't know about because Satan is, is busy. But so far, Marxist ideologues deceive. That's my bumper sticker. It's right next. That one needs to be right next to give the police a raise. That's my other bumper sticker. And, and then we'll have more competition for, for officer, police officer jobs. You won't have as much incompetence as we have because you have more uh, incentive for people to join up. Therefore, I... Say, insist in the Lord that you no longer walk even as the Gentiles, the rest of the Gentiles walk. Hey, if you're hung up on the illustrations from politics and culture and stuff, that's, that, don't worry about that. If you didn't flow, if you're not like tracking with what I'm saying, that's not important for you because it's meant as an illustration of what we're talking about. This is the important thing. Get the content of God's thinking so that you're able to apply God's thinking to your circumstance around you. And it's very important to understand we're, we're under a withering attack of deception and you have to be able to start with scripture and be therefore armed to go into the the arena of ideas and answer so don't walk like don't don't become a fighter one way or the other about these things identify it the way we win this battle is we think it through and then we stay on mission because this is all a distraction to the mission 
So don't walk like the Gentiles. And that's your summary command. And it has to do with a different way of thinking. You've been called to think God's thoughts. And that has an impact on your inner person that you are designed from the factory to think God's thoughts. So this is a different way of thinking and it has a consequence of association. When you think God's thoughts, because you're with God, you enjoy God's life and that's fellowship with God. And so people that have not, they don't have this Christians, people in Christ who are walking as mere men, as Paul says to the Colossians, to, to the, the, the uh, Corinthians. Okay. People that are not Christians and have no possibility of walking in, in this, in the light of this truth. This is your consequence and association. And there is a consequent lifestyle that goes with it. Separation from the life of God and the futility of mind that goes hand in hand with it equals a wantonness, a giving over of self to the expression of the sinful nature. That's what Paul is saying. And if you understand that and you take that information, you know, I, I once heard a friend say that four armed is half an octopus. <laughs> four armed is forewarned. Forewarned is forearm, forearms half an octopus. If you get, take this information into the arena and say, okay, I, I can't fight like in a, in a, I can't debate in a boxing match very well. I can't, like he throws a punch and then I dodge and then I come around with the hook. I, I just freeze up. But let's take it and let's say God is true. Let every man be a liar and let's listen to what's said. And ask God to help me think it through and start tracing through where in the true statements that have been presented, where is the poison? Where is the lie that, that negates the, the, the premise? Where is the problem? And I think that's biblical thinking. And um, don't be afraid because Paul says this is futility of mind. What these people that don't have the life of God in them, they offer futility of mind. Now, just because somebody has a reverse collar and a a sonorous British accent doesn't mean you listen to them either because only God knows those that are of that same mind as him. And, uh, Hey, such a British accent might be used to deny the resurrection of the church might be used to deny the existence of the church or the future reign of Christ in his coming kingdom. As one example that I'm thinking of that I'm not going to name. All right. So this is how not to walk. And you can see why it's the thinking. That's the thinking. Now, David Roseland wants that to be the, what he's talking about. And thankfully it is. So we have two things that are true. I want this to be how it is. And it turns out it is how it is. And now here's the next thing. I want that, that it be, I want this to be that way because God wants it. And that would be the change that, um, that God is working in me. Now that's a little autobiography. But the truth is that you're, you're hopeless if you're just given to intuition. If you're just given into whatever I feel like, you've got to get into the word and think it through, thus the propositions. And this is why sound expositors and teachers of God's people will spend years in Ephesians. This is why. Because it's a learning, a habit of thinking and a, a set of propositions that will stand you up to raise the shield of faith against the flaming arrows of the evil one, which are ideas, which are false thoughts. All right, this is verses 17 through 19. And then Paul moves then into verses 20 through 24, not to walk as the Gentiles, 16 through 19. Now walk, live as Christ, live as you learned Christ in 20 through 24. So this is what my translation says. You did not thus, like the Gentiles think in futility, thus, this is not how you learned Christ. Hopefully that text is not too small for you on the screen. You did not th in this way or thus learn Christ, 
if indeed him you heard. Now, this is interlinear, and your English Bible will make it a lot smoother, but just let's try to get as close as we can to hearing it in Greek, the way Paul said it. This is my goal always for you. Put it in a little technicolor. If indeed you heard, and in him you've been taught. Did you hear Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you been taught in the sphere of him or, or by him? Have you been taught in Christ? Is it about him? See, Paul's the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're Christians, okay? We're disciples of Jesus, therefore under Paul. You didn't learn Jesus in this futility of mind, okay? If you have heard him and you have been taught in him. I believe the if statement is assuming, obviously, these people have because he's talking to the saints, the people of Ephesus or the Christians in Ephesus. Just as truth is in Jesus. Is it, that, when, I, when I read that, just as truth is in Jesus, it makes me think of the interview with Pontius Pilate. What is truth? He asks the one person who could tell you best, ever born of woman, Jesus Christ, what is truth? Truth is in Jesus. If you are not able to connect Jesus as he really is with the situation you're looking at, then that's a question you need to ask in prayer and uh, advance further study. But Satan, listen, Satan has lots of priests and preachers that'll say, this is what Jesus wants. And it will not be the word of God. This is the word of God. So let's listen to it. You did not this way learn Christ. If indeed you heard him and in him you've been taught just as truth is in Jesus. And here is what you're, you did learn. This is kind of a, a elliptical, the way he doesn't give you the, the, the verb, but it, that you set aside is the thing that you did learn according to the former way of life, all that we read in verses 16 through 19, the old man. Plyon Anthropon, the man of oldness. The old man, what is this old man? This means the you before you were made new in Christ. And it, it, it is a way of Paul describing your manner of life. It's, he's saying what he's been saying. It's in context. It really helps to read the text in context. 16 through 19 is don't walk like the Gentiles. And now to do so is to walk as the old man. And now we're walking in the new man. Some have said, well, this is the old sin nature. No, he doesn't mean the sinful nature, although these are connected thoughts. If you walk according to the flesh, you will be putting on the old man, the old life, the old way. Now, this is hard for people like me to get hold of experientially. I just take it by faith on the text. Why? because I don't remember what a wicked reprobate I was when I was two. I was like, like a lot of your kids, like a lot of you, I was raised as a Christian. And so the old way, before I knew Christ, I have a really uh, spotty testimony for the, for the new life I received when I first trusted in Christ. In other words, growing up in the faith is different from these Ephesians that Paul has evangelized that remember and they're looking around, they know how they used to run and they don't now. And so everybody's story is different. And I love when you uh, who have come to Christ later after a lot of experience in the world as the world, when you, you're like, I know what it means that he delivered me from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. I know what it means that he saved me from this old man, from this old life. I love when you share uh, that. And I benefit from it because my experience is a little different in just in terms of when these things happened. 
And I don't agree with the old wisdom that says, and it's really misguided, you let the kids basically grow up as unbelievers until you start evangelizing them as teenagers. I looked that up in the dictionary. It says how to make unbelievers. They're given to you to disciple, and that's your job with them. Is the main thing you do is not feed them. You feed them the word is your main, your main task. Check that out in Deuteron- Deuteronomy chapter 6. All right, so this is the command that you set aside the old man, which is being corrupted according to the lust of deceit. Now, the old man, the old life, the old you is corrupted because there's a fleshly nature that is deceitful and, and telling your sin nature lies to you all the time. It tells you, not just me, it tells you too, that you're more important than you are. It tells you, well, it's okay. It's not a big deal. It tells you, yeah, it'll be fine. And you know, just for a little bit. It tells you all kinds of things that are inherent to just the nature of the flesh. And I know people that don't like the, the, that there's a doctrine of this metaphysical nature in us of sinful uh, lust, but, um, but the, their wives know it's a problem, right? We, we struggle and there is this resistance of the flesh. And so he's talking about the effect of the flesh in your life and you don't live that way. So it is Romans 8, don't live according to the flesh, walk by the spirit. All right, so you put aside the old man and further to continue being renewed in the spirit of your mind. To continue being renewed. So the command is that you put off the old man and you keep being renewed. Now, do you get the the, the theme? Old man being renewed. That's what Paul's thinking. That's what they're hearing in Greek. So we're translating in English, but we say renewed and we don't think of it as old versus new, but that's what, there's this process that you're putting on Christ. It's experiential and progressive sanctification in terms of your spiritual growth. So you continue being renewed in the spirit of your mind. Boy, is that some fun anthropology, the spirit of your mind. I looked it up in Greek. It says the spirit of your mind. Let me summarize Paul's metaphysical anthropology by saying the inner person. The inner you that isn't your body is where you think. Now, I know your brain is part of that process, a big part of that process, but there's more to it than just your physical plant. He says the spirit of your mind, you're being renewed. And so, you know, this is an interesting thought. IQ and intelligence is partly, I mean, a large partly physical, genetic. I don't say genetic, but it kind of is. There's a genetic component to these things. It's hard to study the brain and intelligence studies are very difficult, but there's a brain part to this that's just your body. But he's not talking about that when he says being renewed in the spirit of your mind. He's talking about the inner person. And I believe this is how it works. You are a physical and spiritual being in a mysterious connection between the two. And you need your ears to hear the word and you need your brain to think through the language. But what happens inside you in the inner person, the spiritual mind of you is a supernatural work. So that that mysterious connection between the physical and the the spiritual, I don't claim to be able to um, delineate it. The, 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 The scriptures can do it. But there's a supernatural transformation that's happening on the inner person as you're being renewed in the spirit of your mind. What does that remind you of being renewed in the spirit of your mind? Doesn't that sound like Romans 12? 
not, not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, it's a consistent thought in Paul. And it, it doesn't mean that we come to church and we have a, a feeling. I love, I am emotionally so invested in these things. I just am very passionate and I'm very excited. But it's based on what we're saying here. It's not, it's a, its own self-generated thing. To continue being renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new man. So you're being renewed and you put on the new man after putting off the old man, which is according to God, literally, which is according to God. So the new man is God's. And so you're, you know, thinks God's thoughts, you do God's works, you're God's man. That's the idea. Having been created in righteousness and purity of the truth. Now, again, we're summarizing. I know we're going fast through Ephesians. I'm not taking the time to really pick everything apart, but I hope you can see the, the flow of what he says. The command is that you heard Christ, you've been taught in Christ. If this is true for you, then you know that you're to set aside the old man and to keep being renewed in the spirit of your mind to put on the new man and be God's man, woman, to be to whichever one God made you. And this is the, the new creation in Christ, Ephesians 2.10, you're being created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And you, your new you is created in righteousness. I think this passage is a very strong case for what we call conversion or regeneration, that there was a moment where you were created new. He didn't say with this ongoing creation of the new year evolving, you are growing. It's not evolution into a new, new kind. You are the kind that he made when he created you new in Christ. That's why the perfect tense, he having been created in Christ in righteousness. But that new creation is growing. It's, it's spiritual growth. The new birth and growth language is exactly what Jesus has taught us to think. You must be born again, says Jesus, and then we grow spiritually. So, we're, so the Corinthians are babies in Christ. They're immature. The Hebrews, uh, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 5, they should be teachers by now, but he can only give them milk and not solid food because they become dull of hearing. So it's immaturity versus maturity, carnality versus spirituality is a related concept. And so he's talking about the Christian life. You need to grow up and you need to not walk as an unbeliever in sin. Is that clear? I mean, isn't that, isn't that perfectly clear? So awesome. So do it. So that's what you're supposed to do. And the reason you do it is because of all the great new truth of your new position in Christ from chapters one through three. So when we get to chapter four at the end, you end up with something like that. Uh, I am in agreement with several uh, scholars who will say five basic, five basic combinations, five basic, don't do this, do this, and here's why. And this is the new man in place of the old, what it looks like in verses 25 to 32. This is so fun. Watch this. The colors are there so that you can identify the themes. And the, the blue color is an affirmative command, what you're supposed to do. The red color is a prohibition. It's what you're not supposed to do. And the purple color is God teaching you to think like he thinks. He gives you an explanation of why not this way, but this way. So you, in blue, put on the new man. In red, you put off the old man. In purple, this is the reason why you do it. And it's a list of sins and the alternative to personal sin. It's awesome, this little connection. Therefore, after putting off the lie, means not lying. 
speak truth, each one with his neighbor, because we're members of one another. That's how this thing works. And it's really neat the way you have the thing that we don't do, put off the old man, the thing we do, put on the new man. And the reason why, because of the doctrine that God tells us in verse 25, therefore, after putting off the lie, speak truth, each one with his neighbor. So you don't lie, but you tell the truth. Why? Because we are all members of one another. The doctrine that I taught you in chapter four about the oneness in Christ, beginning in verse, um, I think verse six, that's, that's the, or verse four, that's the basis for this, the unity that we have. We're members of one another, so tell the truth. Be angry, that's what you do, and do not sin, that's what you don't do. Now, I believe, I'm, trans, I'm saying this, summarizing this, passion without sin. You should care. <laughs> you should care. You should be incensed by wickedness. You should want righteousness. You should be on God's agenda. And when you see his agenda stymied, it should be a frustration that you should feel at some level, but you shouldn't be sinful with it. And this is the, the, the challenge about anger. For those of you who don't know how to parse that, just don't ever, don't ever get angry. Jesus was able to do it without sin. And Paul is the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be angry and do not sin. The sun is not to set upon, upon your anger. And I believe that means a third person imperative. And this is a, a, um, a, an idiomatic first century Greek way of saying short time. It's a short thing. You don't walk around in perpetual anger. You don't walk around in this perpetuation of, of anger because that goes to bitterness and it's impossible not to go into sin with this. So be passionate, care, say that's wrong. Righteous indignation has its place, but not sinful anger. And you have to parse that and make the distinction. Again, if you don't know how to be righteously indignant and not be sinfully angry, then you, you need to wait till advanced class to do that. Just reject anger completely. Do not give place, topos, means place, but we can figuratively mean an opportunity. Don't give him any slack to, to hang you with. Don't give place or an opportunity to the devil. See, your anger and righteous indignation can equally, can quickly become a self-righteous zeal, crusader arrogance zeal. And you can become just Satan's minion in your righteous indignation. Or you can become, you can say that's wrong and you can get into sinful anger um, as a, a, which, which started with righteous anger can become sinful anger and given time, because it's supposed to go be short, given time, it becomes bitterness. And then it's just who you are. You're just an angry, uh, bitter person. And that is the devil working you. And here's the thing. Anger is an emotion, right? When your emotions become the standard, Satan is calling the tune. Your emotions aren't the standard. God's word is the standard. That solves your question of angry and do not sin. God's word. Do not give place or an opportunity to the devil. Paul just throws that in there. It's almost a constant thought in his mind. He just kind of slips it in. Hey, the devil's there in that. The devil will mess up your testimony for Christ if you don't love your husband's ladies. If you're not good workers at home and, and Titus too. If you're not the women God wants you to be as Christian examples, then the devil is winning. If you don't take care of the marriage bed, you give the devil an opportunity. Paul, Paul just slips this devil attack in there, just like he thinks like Peter, because he's an apostle of Jesus too. The devil's a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's always outside looking to eat you. And so this is a, an area, area of danger for you, anger. He who steals must steal no longer. That'd be the thing that's the old man. 
And here's the new man, but rather he's to labor, working the good with his hands, literally working the good or doing good works with his hands. Good labor. So the old man steals, the new man in Christ is a hard worker. There's that Protestant Christian work ethic. So that, and here's why you work, so that you'll have something to share with him who has need. So we just did the exact opposite of theft. The exact opposite of theft. See, Robin Hood, is, he's trying to shortcut the system. He robs from the rich to give to the poor. No, no, that's not it. That's not, that's not the biblical way. What you do is you never steal. And if you have need, you work to meet your needs, but you work more to meet the needs of others and you give to people in need. See, this is not, as, they, as the, the Smithsonian Institution Black History Museum said, this is not white culture. This is, this is the word of God. This is the Christian view. It's not racially, ethnically, it has nothing to do with how much melanin's in your skin. It has nothing to do with where you were born. See, that's, that's the way the Gentiles walk. We're one new man in Christ. And this is to walk with our savior who is Jewish. In verse 29, yeah, 29, every worthless word must go, must, must not go out from your mouth. And I know it. Every worthless word must not go out from your mouth. In English, we would say, let no unclean word or unwholesome word, worthless word go out from your mouth. But it's, it's, it's grabs all of them and says, none of them get out. Now, I'm like, I agree with you. You shouldn't have them in there anyway, but they better not come out. Unwholesome word. So that's the, that's the old man is that the speech that destroys. But anything good for edification of the need is what he says. But, but words, but any word that comes out needs to be for edification of the need, that what is necessary to build up in that moment. This is, this is James 3, the mature man and controls his tongue. You, you know, it says perfect, but it means mature. And here's the reason why. So that it give grace to those who hear. If you're counting, we've got three verses. Oh, and then this, this is, this is the interesting one. In your theology, you may, you may know about grieving the spirit. Do you know contextually what he's talking about when he says that? The best I can do in this survey very quickly is the and. The chi is connecting logically the last thought to this thought. So the worthless word and the words of edification connect you to the grieving of the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in whom you were sealed unto the day of redemption. He doesn't tell you, tell you why not to do this. And he doesn't tell you what to do. So I believe the and in verse 31 is connecting us back to the worthless word. So you don't in the new man, you don't say worthless words and destructive words. That includes slander. That includes gossip. That includes all the sins of the tongue, any worthless word. He's very, very broad, but rather you're building people up with what you say so that it give grace to those who hear and not to do so is to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now watch what the Holy Spirit does with your tongue. People want to say, oh yeah, it's speaking in tongues. No, Jesus said, when you need the words, the spirit will give them to you when he's teaching the disciples. And I believe Matthew 10 when you speak to one another, the Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in Ephesians 5, it's because of the, the, you have the filling of the Spirit. And here, the words that you say ought to be the words that come from the power of God the Spirit working the word of Christ richly in you. Not to do so is to grieve the Spirit of God. 
All bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander must be removed from you with all wickedness. This is where Paul just dumps everything else that's in the bucket. No sin nature expression in your life. That's the Christian life. But rather, instead of these things that we do to one another, become unto one another or be unto one another kind, good affectioned, almost the same as kind, giving grace, which is really forgiving to one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. The, the command is no bitterness, no malice, no sinful attitude toward one another, but rather you choose to be kind, having good affections toward one another, forgiving one another. Oh, I can't. Yeah, you must. It's a command of scripture. The spirit of God is more powerful than your hurt feelings. And I know it hurts. I'm saying, put that on the table. It hurts, but you need to expand your perspective to incorporate the power and love of God and put it in perspective. The two little kids fighting over a jelly bean. I want the jelly bean. Is that how you fight over a jelly bean? Not really. It's, it's more, it's more visceral in some, some context. Fighting over a jelly bean. You turn on the light. Behind them in the kitchen is this massive plate of delightful things. There's plenty for everyone. They're fighting over the jelly bean. It's just, it changes. Their perspective changes when they see the other thing. And that's the idea is you need to expand your perspective. You're hurt. Your thing is, is what it is. But I promise you to the extent that you can't obey Jesus Christ and walk with him on this towards someone else, you're being a, you're, you're petty. You're small. We are being petty and small. We're not thinking about the whole picture. And that's what he does when he says, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now, thank you for your attention. I know we've gone a little bit long and it's a little bit toasty. The Christian life is just to put on Christ. It's to walk worthy of our calling. And that gives no room whatsoever for your sin nature to express itself. When you do, you need to confess it because we're supposed to walk worthy of our calling. Our Father, we're thankful for eternal life, the living of it today and thinking your thoughts. And for six Sundays in Ephesians that got us through Ephesians chapter four. Father, we praise you for your timing, for your provision, for your grace. We pray for all those that are struggling with things we've mentioned today, sexual sin, people struggling with forgiveness issues, people struggling with uh, their tongue. Father, Christians really struggling and living this life. Father, let us enjoy the power of your spirit. Just as Paul has prayed, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The deacons get together at 1230 downstairs. Just remind you guys for uh, membership.